Hi, welcome back to Wonderland. Last episode we talked about metaphysics, which is concerned with what is and what can be. And I introduced complexity theory as a way of thinking about the world which allows you to describe systems in terms of their underlying causal mechanisms. So go listen to that episode if you haven't already. Lots of the ideas that I describe which relate to complexity theory will also carry over to the study of critical realism, which is the topic of today's episode. Critical realism is a philosophical system which is concerned with the philosophy of science or epistemology. Essentially, what can we know and how can we know it? Are our senses reliable tools to navigate the world? Or do they represent only one small aspect of a much larger picture? Can reality be studied through materialist, scientific methods? Or does such a reductionist view of the world obfuscate the truth rather than reveal it? These are the sorts of questions we will be tackling in today's episode. But first, let's pick up where we left off in Wonderland. It was a thunderstorm, remember? Chapter 1. Ant Fugue. Again. From your spot under the tree, you watch as the storm slowly comes to an end and the skies begin to clear again. The sun comes out and you watch as the forest comes alive. You spot an ant trail on the ground next to you, trailing off into the woods, and you decide to follow it hoping it might lead you to something interesting. You follow the trail through the forest as it connects back to a series of progressively larger and larger ones, until you are essentially following an ant highway, with hundreds of thousands of ants all marching in the same direction. They must be going back to the colony, you think. But instead of a hill, the parade of ants leads you to a little cottage tucked away in a small clearing in the woods with many ant trails coming from all sorts of different directions and congregating at this central location. Tentatively, you tiptoe over their crisscrossing paths and approach the door of the cottage. But before you can raise your hand to knock, the door swings open, and you are greeted by a cheerful old woman. Oh, hello, dearie, she says. Come inside, I've been expecting you. I'm sorry, but who are you? You ask. Oh, just call me Aunt Hillary, she says with a grin, ushering you inside towards a seat by the fire and handing you a cup of tea. I'm glad to see you got my message, she says as you settle in. Your message? You ask. She shoots you a wink, but says nothing. What are all of those ants doing outside your house? You inquire. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you understood, she says. I'm Aunt Hillary, and this is the Ant Hill. Oh, so they're your ants? Well, only to the extent that the cells in your body are your cells. I didn't choose to have them, nor do I have much control over them, but they make me who I am, yes. I'm confused, you say. 
you're not an aunt. No, I'm not, she replies. No more than you are a collection of chemicals and cells. But that is what you're made of, isn't it? I guess I hadn't thought of it that way, you say, taking a sip of your tea. But how can you be made of ants if all of the ants are outside while you're sitting in here? Oh, child, Aunt Hilary chides. You forget that you are in Wonderland, and here, looks can be deceiving. Here, look, she says, gesturing to an open book. Tell me what you see. Looks like a dialogue of some sort, you say as you examine the page. Seems like the title of this chapter is Aunt Fugue. Quite right, says Aunt Hilary. A story written by a good friend of mine, in fact, concerning this very topic. But I can try to imitate some main themes of his for you now, if you like. You want to know how I can exist independent from the ants which give me my form? Then first consider where in this book the story resides. Well, in the words, obviously. Is that so? Not the letters? Well, no, because the letters on their own don't have any meaning. They have to be put into words in order to make sense. And then the words are arranged into... Sentences. Alright, I guess I see what you mean. It's not just the words that matter, but the order in which they're placed. Exactly. Just as the same letters can be rearranged to create different words, the same words can be rearranged to create different sentences. It's not just the parts that matter, but the relationships between them. The words on their own don't have any more meaning than the letters do. They represent symbols. But those symbols must be arranged into sentences in order to convey an idea. And those sentences are in turn compiled into paragraphs and chapters which tell a story. But what happens if I, for instance, remove one adjective from one sentence in the text? Would it be the same story or a different one? Well, I can't imagine what difference a single adjective would make, so I'm inclined to say it's the same. So then the ideas, to some extent, exist outside of the words which create them, do they not? If, for instance, a hundred people were asked to tell the story of Hansel and Gretel, I'm sure each version would be a little bit different, but the main plot points and characters would stay the same. Just like how a translated version of this book would carry the same contents while being composed of entirely different characters. The medium is not the message. Oh, I get it, you say. The story somehow exists in a realm which is outside of and separate from the things which make up its telling. It's not material, it's conceptual. Exactly, says Aunt Hilary with an improving smile. And you and I are no different. 
The letters on that page are like the neurons in your brain or the ants in my colony. Taken in isolation, they possess no intelligence or agency. They are simply firing or foraging, playing their small part in a much larger system. But just how the letters come together to form words, neurons fire in clusters, which activate symbols in your mind. And my ants operate in castes to perform different duties for the colony. But they are as unaware of me as I am of them. They may make us what we are, but what we are is more than what we are made of. Your subjective experience of being is not the firing of neurons, but the manipulation of symbols. At some point along the way, you, as an emergent entity, came to possess an agency which can act upon the very things which make it up. Aunt Hillary is just an idea. And yet in some ways, I am more real than the ants themselves. I control their behavior. But I don't exist in a material sense any more than you do. You are not simply a series of electrochemical signals. Otherwise, what role would your consciousness play? You are an active agent. And that agency is not a product of your neurons or your nature or your nurture. It is something new, something more. So the reason I can sit here and drink tea with you while my ants roam around outside is the same reason you can sit here and drink tea with me while all of your neurons are stuck inside your brain. You are not in your head. Yet that is where you come from. So where are you? What are you? Throughout Aunt Hillary's speech, you feel yourself overwhelmed by a wave of dizziness and dread. I don't feel so good, you say, getting up abruptly from your spot by the fire and placing the teacup down on the table. In a distant daze, you turn and walk out of the cabin and back out into the woods. Chapter 2. Critical Realism So, the central idea I am trying to convey through this ant fugue, inspired by Douglas Hofstadter's dialogue of the same name, is that reality exists in stratified layers each one emerging out of, yet not being reducible to, the one that came before it. If you like, you can think of this in terms of different areas of inquiry. Mathematics leads to physics, physics to chemistry, chemistry to biology, and biology to psychology. At the most basic level, the firing of neurons in our brain is simply a series of chemical computations. But that certainly isn't what the subjective experience of consciousness feels like. 
We can use mathematics to describe neurology, but psychology is clearly a lot more complex than a series of equations. And you cannot use mathematical models to predict psychological behavior. Roy Bhaskar, the father of critical realism, described this phenomenon by saying, It is true that the path of my pen does not violate any laws of physics, but it is not predicted by them either. So how can we construct a view of reality that accounts for this uncertainty? Well... Critical realism is a philosophical system that was designed by Roy Bhaskar to deal with the implications of emergence, both on what is and on what we can know. In philosophy, these are the domains of ontology and epistemology. Bhaskar's critique of modern science is that it prioritizes epistemology over ontology, emphasizing the ways in which we acquire knowledge while overlooking the fact that there may be some limitations to what we can know through empirical methods. If reality contains emergent layers, then there is no reason to assume that all of it must be confined to the material realm. As Ant Hillary demonstrates, the relationships between things can be just as, or even more important, than the things themselves. There may be aspects of reality which exist in a causal sense, but not a material one. In other words, critical realists are realists about ontology. They believe in an objective reality, but they are critical of our epistemological capacities. What we can know is limited, relative, and often context-dependent. Although the knowledge we gain about the world does speak to real truths, they are approximations rather than absolutes. It's like that parable about the blind men and the elephant, where a group of blind men encounter an elephant and, being unfamiliar with its form, each touch a different part of the animal, leading them to come to different conclusions about the whole. The blind man who touches a tusk is going to have a very different interpretation than the man who touches the trunk. Each of their subjective experiences is correct, just not comprehensive. The information they perceive must be situated inside a broader explanatory framework. What we observe represents only a small part of what is, and what is is only a tiny portion of what can be. For Bhaskar, these are the realms of the real, the actual, and the empirical. The empirical is concerned with that which you can directly perceive, the information provided to you through your senses or innovations and technology. So the things you can see, taste, touch, hear, or smell, as well as data collected through machines such as brain scans, mass spectrometers, or other material measures. The actual refers to that which exists, regardless of if it has been directly observed or not. So the ant colony, or your subjective experience of consciousness, would fall into this category. A brain scan can't tell you the thoughts running through your head any more than an inventory of ants can tell you anything about the colony they are a part of. There are certain aspects of reality which may exist on the ontological level, 
but they cannot be perceived through empirical methods. Finally is the domain of the real, which is concerned with metaphysics and the causal mechanisms and consistent structures which generate events. So this would be the complexity theory I talked about last episode. The real doesn't care about what, who, when, or where, only why and how. If you like, you can think of an iceberg as a useful metaphor. The empirical is the tip of the iceberg, which sticks out above the water and is easily observed. The actual is the rest of the iceberg, hidden underwater, out of sight and out of mind. And the real are the generative mechanisms which caused the iceberg to form in the first place. The physical, chemical, and mathematical properties which would cause any iceberg to form, not just the one you are currently observing. So, if the empirical is only one aspect of a much larger picture, how are we to gain insight into the non-material, non-observable realms? Well, there is an important distinction in definitions I want to draw your attention to. There is a difference between empiricism and epistemology. Epistemology is concerned with what we know and how we can know it, whereas empiricism is focused exclusively on knowledge acquired through sensory experience. The traditional scientific methodologies emphasize that which is measurable, material, and empirical. But this limited formulation leaves out the fact that valuable information can also be gained through our mind. It is not enough to merely experience things. They must be integrated into a non-contradictory whole. And that requires moving beyond the empirical and towards the domains of the ontological and metaphysical. This is the key insight that a critical realist approach provides. Our sensory knowledge may be limited, but our minds still allow us to make meaningful inferences. This is what is known as abductive or retroductive reasoning. Unlike deduction, which goes from the general to the particular, or induction, which tries to go from the particular to the general, Retroduction implies a regression rather than a progression in causal thinking. It is a form of inferential reasoning where events are explained by postulating and identifying the potential mechanisms which are capable of producing them. It's how a detective pieces together clues at a crime scene. DNA is collected, interviews are conducted, testimonies are corroborated, and criminals are profiled. But no one piece of evidence is enough to tell the whole story. A big-picture interpretation is required that integrates all of the various clues most persuasively. The goal is to develop an account of reality that carries the most explanatory power. But a number of different methodologies are available to draw upon. It's not just the hard DNA evidence that matters, and a lack of evidence doesn't automatically mean someone is innocent. Motives and meaningful relationships between actors must also be considered. So if that's the case, then how does a detective know who done it? 
Well, this brings us to the final tenet of critical realism, which is judgmental rationality. This refers to the idea that although a variety of methods are available to acquire information, we do not need to embrace relativism in our assessment of reality. Our understanding of the world may be limited, but truth is objective, and therefore there must be some consistent criteria we can use to evaluate the likelihood of a given theory. To return to our detective example, a good theory is one which takes into account all of the available clues and information to provide a compelling chronicle of events. The best descriptions provide the most explanatory power while being able to withstand criticism and critique. For instance, if a piece of DNA evidence is found at the scene of a crime but the suspect has an airtight alibi, then there must be some alternative explanation as to how it got there. There might be conflicting clues, but that doesn't mean that there isn't one true series of events which caused all of them to come about. What we want is a theory that integrates all available evidence most persuasively. And these theories can be refined and developed over time as new information is acquired. The point is that we are capable of exercising rational judgment and being persuaded by the best argument. But this rational capacity is dependent upon what sort of evidence is provided to support a given claim, as well as the broader explanatory frameworks being appealed to to contextualize available information. Evidence alone is not enough. Interpretation matters too. So, what implications does a philosophy of critical realism have on how we acquire knowledge? Chapter 3. Science Alright, so I've got a bone to pick with the social sciences, and I'm going to take this opportunity to air my grievances. But first, what do I mean when I say science? I'm referring specifically to information acquired through the scientific method. This being the standardized process of collecting and analyzing data to generate predictive results usually by using experiments where variables can be controlled and manipulated to identify cause and effect relationships. Now, in the natural world, this process has worked quite well. Physicists, chemists, and biologists have all been able to use scientific experiments to gain meaningful knowledge about the natural world. And we have the scientific method to thank for much of the progress we have seen in the past few hundred years. So it makes sense that social theorists would try to replicate the success of science in the social realm. And replicate they have. Nowadays, psychological, sociological, and political research is dominated by studies, correlations, and statistics. They make up the basis of psychology textbooks, social theories, and much of modern political debate. There's only one problem. I don't think it's working. Let me give you some examples. Starting with statistics. We're all familiar with stats. 
These are numerical measures of some social variable, usually collected through census data or large-scale surveys. And people love throwing around statistics to make an argument. We're all familiar with the numbers associated with things like the wage gap, wealth inequality, or police brutality. The only problem is that statistics alone don't actually say anything meaningful about the phenomena they describe. They must be contextualized into a broader framework that allows you to make sense of them. For instance, the same piece of evidence, that women make 77 cents for every dollar a man makes, could be used to support feminist arguments demonstrating sexism in the workplace, or an evolutionary psychologist's position that men and women simply have different career interests. It doesn't actually matter what the statistic says, it's a matter of how it is framed. The fact that the top 1% of income earners hold 50% of the wealth is in and of itself a value-neutral statement. But if you start with the assumption that wealth should be normally distributed, then it is going to seem like an indication of a broken system. However, if you're familiar with how complex systems tend towards 80-20 Pareto distributions, then you'll know that income inequality actually means the system is working as expected. The question remains as to if this is a desirable state of affairs, but those conclusions cannot be reached through statistical analysis alone. The second model often employed by the social sciences is correlational research, where you take two datasets and analyze them to try to infer a causal relationship. As most people know, the problem with correlational research is that while any causal relationship can be demonstrated through correlational data, correlation alone does not indicate causation. And even when two variables are related, this may be due to a third variable that has not yet been accounted for, or both variables may be indirect measures of the same underlying concept. Moreover, the vast majority of correlational research is used to confirm common-sense associations rather than discover surprising ones. For instance, some study that demonstrates a positive correlation between reading and vocabulary size isn't conducting groundbreaking research. It's simply scienceifying something that I could have told you for free. The overemphasis on applying scientific methods to common-sense understandings isn't actually doing science. It's just wasting time. The scientific method isn't valuable because it confirms information we already know. Its utility comes from its ability to reveal unexpected relationships. But this can only be achieved through the OG scientific method, which is experimentation. So, let's talk about experiments. Hopefully we all know that experiments work by systematically controlling and manipulating variables in order to detect cause and effect relationships. And this works extremely well in closed systems, which is what natural science tends to study, but completely falls apart when applied to social ones. Why is this the case? Well, it has to do with the objects of inquiry. As it turns out, people are a little different than rocks or rats or nuclear reactors. We are conscious agents, and the content of our mind matters. 
Memories, interpretations, and expectations all play meaningful roles in determining our behavior. So you can't conduct the same experiment on the same person twice, but you also can't make comparisons between subjects for the same reason. Controlling for external sociological factors doesn't diminish psychological or biological ones. It amplifies them. Even if you were to come up with some unethical scenario where you take identical twins and raise them in a lab so you can conduct experiments without any potential confounds, the highly controlled nature of the study would make the results ungeneralizable to the general population. People are complex systems, meaning our behavior is motivated by a plurality of factors that cannot be easily disentangled. What I am trying to get at is that there is a fundamental difference in kind which separates the social world from the natural realm. People are self-interpreting and value-oriented agents. Not only do a multiplicity of factors motivate any given decision, but people are often highly unaware of what these factors are or could be. Practicing social science requires operationalizing variables which are, by definition, subjective and context-dependent. Unlike objective qualities like weight or temperature, there's no way to measure a concept such as happiness or anxiety, never mind a metric that would allow you to compare subjective experiences across individuals. Unlike the natural sciences where the objects of inquiry are independent from the aspirations of the researcher, social science both defines and influences social reality. Think about the rise in discussions over mental health issues in the past decade or two. The rise in conversations about mental health causes people to introspect and potentially identify mental health issues in themselves, causing reports of mental health issues to increase and more people to be discussing it. It becomes a self-perpetuating feedback loop. The second major problem in social science is that it is impossible to isolate any phenomena down to a simple cause-and-effect relationship between two variables. Scientific experimentation relies upon closed systems, wherein one variable can be manipulated at a time while controlling for all others. Being able to exercise perfect control over passive agents is what allows a scientific method to produce predictive and replicable results. However, people are much more complex than the objects of natural scientific study. Their actions are motivated by a lifetime of experiences, expectations, interpretations, and biological mechanisms which motivate behavior. It would be highly unethical to conduct a study which would attempt to control for all of these factors. And even then, people have unique genetic predispositions which would only be augmented by controlling for all other variables. Given the near-infinite amount of potential confounds at play, it becomes nearly impossible to falsify a given claim. For scientific research to be valid, it must be disprovable. However, a theory tested through social science research can always attribute failure to the existence of a confounding variable to justify an unfavorable result. While many social scientists would readily admit that their findings are not nearly as precise, predictive, or objective as their natural scientific counterparts, few recognize that their research may actually be doing more harm than good. There seems to be a disconnect between the philosophy of social science 
which acknowledges this fundamental difference in kind, and the practice of social science, which remains committed to a scientific ideal. The problem with social science is that it seeks to draw a direct one-to-one causal relationship between phenomena, rather than examining how a complex set of interactions lead to the emergence of social behavior. There is never a single universal law at play, and any attempt to define such rules is only a partial truth, overlooking how a multiplicity of events are required to shape social action. Therefore, any fact distilled from social research threatens to oversimplify and obscure the more nuanced aspects of social reality. This is not to say that there are never any causal relationships that exist between social practices, but they are never all-encompassing. They represent generalities or averages rather than consistent principles. Personal beliefs and agency just make up too big a part of the picture. For instance, take an issue like the use of corporal punishment on children, physically reprimanding them for bad behavior. Nowadays, it is generally accepted that this is not productive, bad for a child's psyche, and generally does more harm than good. But there are still millions of people who were abused as children and went on to have successful lives. Not because of, but in spite of, the harm they incurred. But even then, I'm sure there are people who would attribute the resilience they've acquired in their life directly due to a rough childhood. Although you can't conduct a scientific experiment to prove that empirically, it makes sense intuitively. Acquiring the tools to overcome adversity makes us stronger and better at dealing with obstacles later in life. But clearly this principle doesn't apply to everyone. It is entirely context-dependent upon the child and their internal capacities to redirect struggles into success. This could depend on genetic predispositions, social factors such as a positive influence in younger years, or internal ones. Maybe reading a certain book is all it took to begin reclaiming and integrating your lived experiences. The point is that any number of factors could or could not play a role in shaping human behavior. While one person may find success in spite of their abuse, another person might end up with a slew of mental health attachment and addiction issues. On the flip side, too much care and coddling can also result in adults that are not well adjusted to deal with the world as they grow older. Children raised by overprotective helicopter parents are also more at risk to experience anxiety and depression later on in life. A lack of personal responsibility, autonomy, and agency isn't good for anyone either. You'll notice that I might be citing facts derived through social research, certain correlations and relationships, but I'm situating them inside of a broader explanatory framework. I'm not trying to argue that any one behavior consistently leads to a given result. In fact, I'm trying to demonstrate that different upbringings all along the social continuum, from extremely negligent to extremely overbearing, can have both positive, negative, and neutral outcomes. It always depends on the individual, their life story and lived experiences. Certain factors may make a person more or less likely to result in a given outcome. Fatherless homes are known to be correlated with criminal behavior in adolescence. 
but there is always going to be stories of people who gained more maturity and resolve for those exact same reasons. Individual agency and experience is always the main driving force behind any series of behaviors. You can never use one to drive the other. They are always going to be complex, entangled, and interrelated. Hopefully my position on social science is beginning to become a bit more apparent. I also want to make it clear that when I talk about social science, I am specifically referring to research that seeks to demonstrate causal relationships between two socially constructed variables. This leaves plenty of room for meaningful scientific research to be conducted in the realms of biology and neurology. Clearly, we can conduct brain imaging research that correlates different brain areas with different mental states, or test phenomena such as reaction time and memory. This sort of research is certainly more difficult because of the confounding social and psychological factors at play, but it is at least tethered to objective measures of reality. Cognitive psychology studies suggest that our working memory consists of seven units plus or minus two, but our minds are like a muscle, and the more we practice a task, the better at it we become. Waitresses who work without notepads probably have a better working memory than your average Joe. And there are master memorizers who can commit an entire deck of cards to memory within minutes. So there might be norms, but there are also exceptions. So there are no absolute laws at play like there are in math, physics, chemistry, or biology. An unwatered plant will die. I've heard that E equals MC squared, and 2 plus 2 definitely make 4. In the social world, there are no such definite truths, and the more abstract the concepts become, the more room there is for uncertainty and interpretation. The social science's emphasis on establishing facts rather than explanations reduces much of social discourse to who can provide the best empirical evidence to support their claims. However, as I have alluded to earlier, this approach puts the empirical cart before the ontological horse, forgetting the need for a comprehensive theory wherein social knowledge is to be situated. The legitimacy of the facts produced by social science can always be called into question. An alternative explanation is always available, meaning factual findings hold little persuasive power over their theoretical opposition. Any statistics cited in social debate can be dismissed as inaccurate, incomplete, or inconsequential. For instance, in a discussion between the merits of capitalism versus communism, both sides would insist that a true version of their economic system has not been tried. Therefore, they would not be persuaded by appeals to available evidence unless it supports their case. Ultimately, it is our values which inform our interpretations of the world. Scientific evidence is only used as an anchor to legitimize our beliefs. In other words, feelings don't care about your facts. This is a theory that I first heard from philosopher Charles Taylor, and I believe it is of central importance. He proposed that the intelligibility of any argument relies upon shared value orientations. We must appeal to people's emotional intuitions if we want to persuade them to hold a certain point of view. For instance, 
I find it unlikely that anyone would support an economic system that leads to the mass starvation of millions of people. If communism or capitalism is more likely to result in that is a different question, but at least we've established a shared basis of understanding and discussion. We can investigate how we got to these starting principles later, but first we must recognize that we are being motivated by certain value orientations. People are much more likely to be persuaded by arguments that appeal to reason and shared ideals, rather than simply citing facts sourced through supposedly scientific studies. So again, this leads back to the critical realist notion that we should emphasize explanatory power over empirical evidence. The proof is in the pudding in terms of lived experience. If you can't have a conversation with someone and meet them where they're at, recognizing their subjective interpretations and feelings, you're not going to convince anyone of anything. People might be wrong in their underlying assumptions, but that is why it is so important to establish where you agree first as a scaffolding to build off of. And those starting points can come from anywhere, either appeals to empiricism, meaningful interpretation, or first principles. The point is that we want to focus on developing theories, not facts. A good theory integrates facts, but a collection of facts does not create a theory. In fact, a good theory can stand on its merits and predictive power alone. It doesn't need to have any empirical proof in order to be true. Historically, this has been the case. Social theory manifested and was communicated through stories and religion, where principles of human nature are expressed through narratives that convey morals. Our cultural heritage is full of folk tales, adages, and anecdotes. And although these stories may not be empirically true, they speak to deep social and psychological truths that we intuitively pick up on and understand. People are meaning and value-oriented agents. Our minds haven't evolved to process the facts and figures derived through scientific research. Moral reasoning isn't based off of calculations, but associations. And there's nothing wrong with that. The ultimate goal of social inquiry is to develop ideas that allow us to better understand the world around us and how to act in a way which is purposeful and productive. And this can come in any form, from philosophy to psychology, politics, or poetry. Domains based not just in ideas, but ideals. But where do those ideals come from? How can one make the leap from facts to values? How do our moral understandings and intuitions arise out of a material world? Well, I'll talk about that next episode where we dive into ethics, free will, religion, and determinism. So stay tuned. And please, share this podcast if you have found it interesting or insightful. Thank you so much for visiting Wonderland. Oh, and a little shout-out to my darling Alex on Twitter. You're the best girl. Thank you so much for all of your love and support. <laughs> okay, until next time.